Nature Works Podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. In this episode of Nature Works Podcast, I speak to the legendary Simon Temple. Simon's a sailor, a surfer, a freediver, a salty dog of a spear fisherman. He's also an avalanche survivor and world-renowned cameraman with skills for telling a great story, as you'll hear in this conversation. Also, we talk about many wild adventures, including heli-skiing guiding in Canada, Alaska, New Zealand and Austria, sailing in the Pacific on a traditionally built rope and wood boat, which, uh, from the sounds of it, almost fell apart, or at least seemed like it would, as well as Simon's career path of working on movies such as The Lord of the Rings. We go deep into how we can develop an even deeper connection to nature. And Simon tells a story of, albeit a strange tale, of an ocean navigator who uses his testicles to detect ocean currents. Yes, you heard that right. Someone who uses his testicles to detect ocean currents. Figure that one out. If you enjoy this episode and others, please share with other folks who are like-minded and give a crap about the natural world. This podcast is free of sponsors or advertising, and we aim at all times to provide honest and unbiased insights into how we can help protect, restore, and for goodness sake, we have to do this now before it's too late. Regenerate the natural world. That's the first time I've heard the jingle as the intro to the podcast. And it's also the first time I've done a podcast with a dog licking my feet under the table. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of firsts in the room today, Mike. There's a lot of firsts in the room. And not least of all, the fact that it's taken us, I think, over 24 hours to set up the lighting, to set up the multiple cameras, to get this camera, which is a fancy camera, all set up and on the right settings. And that's because... You're the first real expert in all of this stuff that I've actually had in the podcast room. I think there's also a little bit of island style thing going on here too. We had an electricity issue where Mike got electrocuted the day before <laughs> next door <laughs> and uh, we had to come in and rewire the place for us to be able to sit here today. So Yeah, there were people rewiring in, in both parts of the office at uh, 10 p.m. last night. So uh, it, yeah, it's taken a bit of an effort to get here, hasn't it? Yeah, I like it though. It's all of a sudden it feels good. Although uh, one thing that people listening or viewing this won't know is that the aircon's not working very well either. So we're both going to end up with sweat dripping down our brow. It's nothing to do with the questioning, I assure you. No, indeed. Well, you don't know that yet, do you? You don't know that. <laughs> Let's find out. Um, I, so I don't usually go off on notes and things, but the problem is, is that some people you meet them and you find out about their backgrounds bit by bit and i've known you for nearly a year now haven't i sort of just you know interactions here and there and coffees and the likes and i didn't know that you'd been a ski guide i i I mean i know that you're a um a very very high level uh director of photography but didn't know you'd been a ski guide didn't know that you'd spent months on boats and sailing and surfing and all this different stuff that we're going to go through here so these notes are really just to remind me of your extensive um, career and background um, but the first thing I'm going to ask you about actually is something that you were telling me about the other day and I think it's a nice opener uh, because this podcast is mostly about environmentalism and conservationism but it's also about nature and our relationship to nature and my actual real intention for this 
is to interview people who give me the opportunity to feel closer to nature. I used to go into, when I lived in uh, Los Angeles, I used to go into the Patagonia store, not to buy anything, but to walk around and feel closer to nature through all their imagery and all of their, mm. their clothing. It's so natural. And, and my wife would be like, oh, did you get your fix today? You know, <laughs> I might come back with a cup or something, you know, because everything's so bloody expensive in there. Um, but that's what this is about. And, and your stories, and I'm, because we've had so many of them, we've had, like, you know, the last six nights or something, I'm in dinner together and the likes. And, your stories make me feel closer to nature, but there's parts of nature that I don't want to feel closer to, and that first part of that is, is avalanches. We'll talk about your career and all that stuff in a minute, but I want to know what it's like to be caught in an avalanche. Wow, so that was the big one. Exactly. Uh, well, you know, I'd done a lot of research training as a guide, and it's something I always wanted to do, and I'd been one of those foolish, haphazard cross-country skiers, or backcountry skiers, should I say, and... And I'd gone out there and, and seen stuff fall around me and not really knowing what it was like. When I started reading about it, I thought, gosh, it sounds quite horrible. You know, it happens very fast. Some of these powder avalanches can move 200 kilometers an hour. And you, you have this experience of, I mean, it happens very fast, you know, very, very fast. And you kind of have this experience of helplessness because everything starts to kind of cement around you. Um, you go into the white room, you get really disorientated. Just What's the white room? We just can't see anything, mm. you know. Um, and, uh, you know, as the world starts to slow down, literally in seconds you're frozen in one place. And, you know, I'd, I'd read about it and I'd, I'd read about things before which would happen to people in this one book called Avalanche Accidents in Canada since 1998 at that time, you know, when I was when I was involved in the training. And it was a horrible bedtime read. I know. was going to say it's a cheery book. But yeah, virtually everyone in the book dies. Yeah. There's no heroes. And so, um, but you read about how they died and how many people died and what happened, what was the snow like that day. And so you start to get an idea of what where not to be. And I was in the wrong place. So I was in what's called a class three avalanche uh, where a, a bowl ripped out and sent me into a terrain trap over a waterfall. So explain what a bowl is in the terrain trap because there'll right. be people here who've never been in the mountains. Sure, sure. So basically from the very top of the, the mountain, there was a, 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 as, the, as the mountain goes to a peak, there's kind of a saddle between the next peak. And, uh, and inside that saddle is, is a bowl of snow and it's a catchment of snow. And so that's where the avalanche was forming, basically, as a big, bad, dangerous layer on top of a weak layer. And it just needed somebody of about my weight to break that layer as I was traversing across that bowl to get to the next place I wanted to ski. And so I traversed across that, and I could hear this this whimping sound, which is where you get this hollow sort of sound. It's like, woof. You can sort of you know, go, oh, gosh, there's, that's the weak layer collapsing underneath me. And I had a friend with me at the time, my girlfriend at the time, actually. And uh, I said, you stay here because I don't trust this, this slope. And I tried to like beeline for this, this ridge or this rocky outcrop where I thought it would be safe to kind of you know, check the snow again. Because by that stage, I was already partway across the slope. So I wasn't going to just go backwards. And uh, I'd read, actually, that the people who survive the most are the ones moving the fastest. When it takes off. Yeah. So you're racing the avalanche. Kind of, yeah. I mean, basically, it's like a conveyor belt. So if you're moving really fast, and you're not going to match the speed of an avalanche, but um, basically, you kind of stay on top of this conveyor belt, you know, as much as you can. Mm. The last thing you want to do is, the, is be buried deep. The people that are buried the deepest are the ones that perish mostly. You know, the deeper you are, the 
the less chance you have of surviving. Because it's going to take longer to find you and there's everything else. Yeah, Because you can still die a foot under the surface, of course, but of course. people are going to find you easier and dig you out quicker. That's right. That's right. And sometimes you may even sense the light or sense which way is up. You might not be able to do anything about it, but at least you get an idea of where you are in relation to the top of the snowpack. So, so I started going across. I could hear the whoomph and then... The, the slope behind me ripped out and I could hear this thunderous crack, you know, and then I, and then I realized that, that that slope's going to join the slope I'm on anytime soon inside this bowl. So I decided to just point it straight, you know, registering that, that fastest people uh, get a better chance of survival. And, uh, and I pointed it straight and there was a waterfall there and of course I didn't see the landing but I just knew I had to go off it because I was just trying to get out of this thing. There was nowhere else to go. There was rocks either side of it. I just There was just nowhere else to go. So I just shot off this waterfall, and I have no idea what size it was. I, I don't want to brag about it, but it may have been 10 meters. And um, and I landed inside the bowl. I managed to land on my feet, and as I, as I was literally straight-lining down this bowl, the slope, the whole slope came up over, over top of me and then set off another avalanche in the slope that I'm on now. And that's when this the that's when it happened, you know. I was in the white room and it just happened so fast. Like I must have been moving the fastest I've ever moved. And I was very disorientated, couldn't see, you know, or feel which direction was I couldn't even tell how fast so I was. You can't going. see if you're heading towards boulders or trees or anything, you're just going flat out as fast as you can down the mountain to that's try right. and what stay at at least a similar speed to the avalanche. At this stage, yeah, the, because the the slope had started to move underneath me quite fast, I couldn't actually ski anymore. So now I'm kind of sat down, you know, because there was there was no there was no way to sort of stay on my feet. Tea and biscuits. Yeah, it was <laughs> tea and biscuits would have been quite nice at that stage, you know. But uh, I I wasn't really scared or anything like that. I just thought I could just get away with it, and eventually it might just be a little wee, you know, slough and 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 it all clear, and and I'd be sort of, you know, have some avalanche debris around me, and I could just sort of brush it off and keep going. But uh, and then what happened was I got this experience, um, and I call it the worm, where I had snow forced into my throat. And as the avalanche um, starts to pack together, it's going down the waterfall and filling up this valley. It's starting to condense together and turn to you know, kind of more or less concrete. It's like a slurry of concrete. And it's just finding its way into things, and it's finding its way into my mouth. So I was coughing up snow, you know, three or four times, remember, just coughing up these... This snow was trying to ram its way into my into my throat, and uh, and then I could have did three arm movements, and then that was it. I was locked, you know, and I couldn't. I what could position just, were you locked in? Uh, Is it, and by locked, you mean the snow all of a sudden all comes to a stop and it compacts, and yep. it compacts with you in it. That's right, yeah. And so I kind of waved my arms and tried to kind of stand up a couple of times, and then that was it. I was just frozen, and I managed to get one arm sort of in front of my face, which is the other thing that you you know told to do is to try to create an air bubble and you'll survive a bit longer. And goggles and stuff over your face, isn't that one of them? Or? Yeah, I mean, I actually, funny enough, I had everything on, um, so so nothing really came off. I don't remember actually if anything came off goggles-wise. I think I definitely had my goggles on. Strangely, they should have come off first. Um, so, and that was it. I was I was there. I was. And I could just wiggle my fingers inside my gloves and wiggle my toes inside my boots. And that was all I could do. I was encased. For how long? What happened? Uh, so I had enough time to think, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm now in an avalanche and I'm stuck. And I got a slight little panic surge. And uh, then I started just feeling sorry for my parents that I hadn't been able to say goodbye. 
and that I might have just killed my girlfriend. And, um, you know, th that's, that's a pretty dramatic thing to have to go through. And I, I started saying, to, feeling to myself, I hope I just die fast. I hope it doesn't hurt and I just sort of just as asphyxiate and just pass out. Um, I, I knew that there was no way to find the surface because I just couldn't move inside the snowpack, you know. And uh, so I had an arm slightly in front of me and I created somewhat of a bubble, but I couldn't tell how much of a bubble. So, so I didn't know how long I was really going to survive. And I knew that if I just kind of like, you know, took some deep breaths and really breathe really slowly, then maybe it would just help me to settle into death. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was it, basically. And then an angel appeared. And then an angel appeared. Uh, a, a, a French guy had seen me actually from the chairlift and he had managed to, I think, jump off the chairlift, I heard later on, and ski across the slope. And he kept an eye on me and he went straight to the position where I was and he started digging and he found me. And I was only, really? a, I was only a foot, I think, or maybe maybe a little more uh, below the surface. Uh, but the um, the amount of uh, snow that I was sitting on would have been about five metres. So so I'd, I was actually really lucky to, to be on the top of it. And uh, he, he was a French guy, and he, and he, he basically got me out. And uh, he got me out with my head first, luckily. And then he started speaking really bad German to me, because <laughs> I was in Austria. And so he was asking me, uh, is there anyone else in the slope? Is there anyone else on the slope? And, uh, you know, I didn't really speak very good German at that time, and I was just, like, really grateful, obviously. But at the same time, as soon as I came out, I was, like, really keen to find Emily. Mm. You know, so uh, so I, I managed to kind of dig my way out, and I remember pulling a muscle in my shoulder, just frantically trying to get once my one arm was out, just trying to get myself out, like a wild animal caught in a trap, huh? For sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, did it put you off ski? Not at all. Not at all. But but I'd also been involved in a lot of adventure sports where I'd had many crashes before, and I'd always go back to the place of the crash and try to figure out what happened. So I'd always, I was very curious about that and it's like, right, next time I come off my mountain bike, I'm not going to let that front wheel do that thing again. Where did that happen? And then I can go, oh, see, I was the idiot and I did it. It wasn't the, the something out of my control. And as long as I knew that, that I was the reason for it, then I could not be the reason for mm -hmm. it next time, you know. So that's what I did is I went back to the place where it, where it started to propagate the avalanche and I worked out what had happened. And it made me feel much better about it. And, and I, was, I was back. I think I took a day off. But at that stage in that year, there was a few avalanches and there were a few deaths. And every year in the Alps, there's many deaths. Um, and also every year in the Alps, there's many people turning up that don't know about the deaths and get killed. So, so you know, it's just just one of those tragic things about powder skiing. Of course, it's the, it's the best thing in the world when everything's going well. And when you see the nice fluffy white stuff, you never think about the tragedies and the... You know, the potential hazards and if you do you probably wouldn't enjoy yourself out there so you've done literally hundreds or thousands of helicopter flights as well and flights up into the mountains spent probably most of your life in wild places haven't you from the sounds of it yeah you're typically not spending doing your work in studios as opposed to being out doing docus and and the likes but how long were you a mountain guide for so i started uh, training when I was at university and I started guiding while I was at university too just here and there little bits and pieces uh, and then and that would have been in 1998 
to start with. And then I think I was qualified with my ski level one in 2001. So that was three years later. Uh, and I'd already started doing some tail guiding for a uh, cat skiing operation in New Zealand. And so I was very lucky to be to get a job, actually. It's very tough to get jobs as a guide. So I was lucky to get a job there. And, and then um, I actually moved to Wanaka, which is like heaven on earth. It's gorgeous, though. It's unbelievably beautiful. It is. And clean and pristine and just, yeah. I mean, it, you can see why Lord of the Rings was shot in New Zealand. <laughs> because it looks like a world before garbage and eyesores blighting the horizon. It really is. It's it's a, just a, I mean, especially Wanaka, it's just gorgeous. And and the people as well, like, you know, it, it's it's lovely to be in a town full of adventurers, you know. And for me, and I always even feel this way, even in cinematography, is that I still feel like a rookie, which is quite a nice thing to feel, you know. There's just so many legendary people out there. And in Wanaka, there was just all these legendary people. And it's, I think that's why I really started having mentors looking up to people you know there were these people that you just go wow that guy is such a strong climber he's such a strong skier that guy can do anything you know and he usually gets the hottest girls in town too did you always <laughs> <laughs> oh, worthwhile unless that's not your thing uh, did did you actively go and engage with those people and, and ask to be mentored or did you just hang out around them and model I was a bit of a tire kicker for sure. Um, you know, I wanted to be around the guides and I was pretty young and probably stupid and asked the, the wrong questions to start with. Um, funny thing is, is I actually noticed uh, that some of the guides were very serious, you know, it was a, and, and, and I thought it was this fun job where you could just like romp around with people and, and have a, a good Risk, old jolly. Well, with their lives in your hands, isn't it? Well, I didn't know that at the stage, you know. I just thought being a guide was just about being outdoors and having fun and, uh, and allowing you know, people to find themselves out there and, and using the wilderness as therapy, you know, and this is, and what, what, what better job in the world is there? Uh, and then I realized that actually, uh, especially mountaineering and especially uh, heli skiing, is, is very dangerous. And, um, you know, you're holding people's lives in your hands and uh, the, just very quick decisions have to be made on the way up. Sometimes you're in a helicopter and you've got two or three minutes to decide which run you're going to take just by looking out the window. And uh, there's people talking and being excited and stuff, and you've got to kind of stay composed. And 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 I notice these people are very serious. And then you realise that as you get further on in your career, that um, it is a very serious job. Mm. And you've uh, sometimes got to have a stern face to you know, hold the leadership role and make sure that people trust in you as well. Massive responsibility. Yeah. I mean, some of the stories that you've said about people not listening to you and then making massive errors turning their legs around the wrong way facing <laughs> yeah. the opposite directions and look i've i actually thought about becoming a, a mountain guide in my early 20s because one of my mentors and very close friends steve monks who is a legend out of you probably know out of, yeah you know he's british he's from bristol from where i came from and uh, he encouraged me to become a guide when i was in my early 20s because i didn't know what else to do apart from go rock climbing yeah um, but when I looked at the amount of work and time that I'd have to spend ice climbing in, in the mountains, that put me off because I just wanted to climb in the sun. Yeah. But the appeal of having a career in the most extreme, raw, and also the most wild of places, that's the bit that appealed. I didn't particularly want to take people up mountains. I wanted to be in the mountains. And I imagine that's the case for a lot of mountain guides, right? It's not just... That you want to be giving people an experience that's a bonus you want to be up there every day 
rather than being on a tube in London or commuting into work or even working in a in an office. That's that ability right. to be, especially if you're in the southern, you know, in the New Zealand Alps or something like that, it's an incredible way to spend your time. And the reason I mention that is because I'm I'm curious as to what you think compels people to be in those places. They're da- it's dangerous. I mean, we okay, we we learn how to navigate danger, but a lot of people don't make it that far without breaks or sprains or worse, death. Um, my own wife, who in, in the first year of her climbing nearly died in a climbing accident, um, you know, from a, an era of thinking that she was more experienced than she actually was in her first year because she's climbing with all these pros and experts and then she goes off on her own for her first ever climb with somebody who thought she was more experienced and you know, the rest is four, five operations on her wrist and yes. helicoptering out and all of that sort of stuff. But what do you think it is that, uh, with all your experience with people, both through guiding and also making documentaries and filming in wild places, what is it that compels us to be in these situations yeah, it's, and places. It's, it's a very good question and, and uh, that's something that I was interested in my studies at university too actually uh, it's just seeing what motivated people to be in the mountains and, and take up leadership roles in the mountains in particular uh, or in the wilderness should I say uh, one thing I did observe is that it usually starts with a passion people wanting to be out there and and uh, you know um, challenge themselves I think that what I observed was there are people that just want to climb and they use guiding as a way to keep climbing so they can get paid you know and basically it's almost like the job is just a way for them to continue doing their climbing career instead of the job being the career and I think those guides find it particularly maybe a little bit harder to guide people because they get a bit impatient you know these guys are like topping out on on really hard climbs on the weekends and then they're having to take clients up really easy climbs you know in the weekdays so they probably don't have that kind of patience level then you get another sort of sort of guide who just wants to be in the mountains the whole time and, and they actually really like when people get a kick out of being out there so that's kind of different motivations um, for the real soloists, soloists and the real purists they don't often make the best guides my belief um, I mean, you can be both uh, for sure it's a sliding scale but those real purists are the ones who just want to go and take all the big peaks and bag peaks, you know, uh, bag descents or ascents. And uh, I think that that's the purity, that sense of purity is, is where it comes from, is where the, the desire to be in the, the mountains come from. I, I, I remember being, the first time I kind of really experienced being in the flow of wilderness is when you come up to the top of a peak and all you hear is, nothing else and you you this you don't hear anything i want to be there now yeah I know, I know that sound and and you just and you just look around and there's nothing except you and you hold your life in your hands like quicksand and you can make a decision which would kill you or or take you down safely and you start feeling immensely powerful and it's like a locus of control you know like i'm in control and i'm strong enough to be here and i've granted myself and you feel like super in control but but you're not depending on anyone else. And nature doesn't care about the outcome either. No, no. Only you do. 
that that's absolutely um and then also being at the top of something you know i mean getting to the top of something is quite an achievement especially when you're doing you know getting up at three in the morning or or even even worse <laughs> well should i say worse but you know a time where you have to get up and ascend before the sun hits the snow before it gets dangerous uh and then go through cr- rocky crevasses and, and with your head torch only and and then get to the bottom of the mountain and climb you know it's all quite exciting and it's a huge effort it really is it's not for everybody but when you get to that top and you top out and you've got your your hands in your life your hands in your life like quicksand and you only hear that sound you're like wow i did it and then what happened is what i think happens anyways you come back down to the village and nothing's a problem hmm. for a while at least it's not doesn't it's not long long lasting but you're like doesn't matter if that guy just parked in front of me I don't care if the internet's not working. You know, you just nothing it's becomes trivial. a problem. It's trivial. You know, if, if people around you that you don't really like anymore, you like, yeah, it's no problem. Just smile it off. I just climbed a mountain, you know. Yeah. And I'm really powerful and strong and, and able. And, and I think there are many factors in that. And I, I read a study some months ago, so I won't be able to quote the specifics of it, but it was talking about how walking in nature, especially in forests, um, it has a... It has a beneficial therapeutic effect on people's health. And it's not just because you're cognitively enjoying the sight of trees and nature, although there may be some inbuilt identification of that pattern because that's where we've come from. But you've got all of these unseen elements, which is the pheromones coming from the trees, the, the communication signals coming from the trees and the plants, the smells that you're not, not even consciously aware of. And also the electromagnetic fields. Right now we're in this box and we actually don't have Wi-Fi in our office, as you know, because I don't like the Wi-Fi electromagnetic field. Um, the, the, The EMF in natural places is concentrated in a much different way to what you get in cities where you have all of these non-native EMFs. And I, I mean, I'm never happier than when I'm high in the mountains away from any cell signal any sign of civilization and the rawness of the wind, especially when the wind changes and you feel a temperature drop and you know something's coming on that wind and you, or you need to be alert to the fact that you've got a couple of hours to get back down, get to the top and get back down. And it's exactly these elements of, of going into wild places where you know you are taking full agency for your own survival, which is very rare in the modern world nowadays. It's, I mean, different here in Bali where we ride around on motorcycles wearing helmets because we choose to not because we have to although it is a law apparently that you do have to wear helmets but obviously it's not really enforced damn yeah and people ride motorbikes here like they're in a fairground attraction you know (laughs) where you're on the rails so we have certain amount of agency here and we surf and the likes but most in most people's lives they they're now there's a tight constraint you get in a car it's a safe car it's got airbags it's you know it's going to alert you when you're getting too close to the car in front or you get on the train and hopefully if you're living in a developed country those trains are highly functional then you go into a safe environment there's no fear and then neither should there be of any threat from the people you work with um everything's safe 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 and it's all man-made frequencies and it's man-made things in front of you and then you plonk somebody in the mountains where all of that is blown away. And I don't like using the word too often because it's overused, but it's profound. Mm. It can be a p- completely profound experience. Even as I was listening to you there and talking about that and your great 
wind sound. I was taken straight to the top of one of the Colorado Rockies, which we lived in the Rockies for three years before we came to Bali. I, and I want to be there. It's like yeah. I want to feel that rawness that you only get in nature. And it's that rawness for me that is so compelling, and I expect is the case for many other people. Absolutely, and I think that actually that that rawness can be um, sometimes uh, seen as an addiction for people who aren't climbers, who just see a climber who comes off a climb and immediately is planning the next one, because it's quite it's quite a feeling, you know. And you felt it then, and and um, and only a climber can feel it. That you know, th- there's there's more to just explain than words. There's a feeling that you just can't explain in words, and you don't. We we're just speechless, and you just take it in. And like you say, there's temperature drops, changes everything. You can just feel everything, can sense everything. Um, and similarly, uh, when I was guiding, because I also guided uh, cycle tours and hiking tours. And even wine tours, you know, I, I got a bunch. Now of you're talking stuff, this mountain <laughs> stuff. Let's go and do wine and cheese. Yeah. Um, and I and I guided with a guy who I really looked up to. His name's Jeff Gabbardies, and he was quite a, a famous New Zealander. And I really loved that man. Um, and he had just amazing stories of climbing the Trango Towers and base jumping off it, you know. And I'm like, wow, this guy's amazing. That's a big deal, yeah. You know, and he's an old school climber. He'd been around since the 70s. Very strong climber. And this guy had calf muscles like tree trunks. He's the sort of guy that you just, his stories, you just go, like, I just sit there and listen to Uncle Jeff, you know, talk about stuff. But he ran this uh, this company called Adventure South, and I got a real chance to guide people. So then I started having a different experience where I would take people into the wilderness, just on hiking trails, and get to a trailhead or a viewpoint. And then just, I just like to look at how people absorbed that, you know, and, and, and what they felt, and it was so beautiful, became speechless, you know, all of a sudden. And, um, for me, when you go to those places, that's how nature intends it to be. That's the perfect balance of everything. Right? There's no human intervention except for the trail you're standing on. And if you can just take that in for a moment and say, this is recalibrating. You know, it's kind of this, this, this just, just feels like you're being kind of reset when you're there at that place. Yeah, reset's a good way of describing it. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. And you come back to the car and all of a sudden everything feels light and fluffy again. It's a real high. Mm. So so I was kind of drawn to that as well, you know, just that wilderness experience. There's sometimes also the relief that you're still alive and that you can touch the car. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like I'm back in civilization, even if I still have 10 miles down a dirt track to get to. I'm in a car. <laughs> but the chocolate tastes better at the top of the mountain, oh, even yeah. if it's really crap chocolate. Yeah. Um, the beer, which is a bad beer, will taste really good. You know, everything, all of a sudden life tastes good. Yeah, you know, just from that wilderness experience. So you spent a lot of time in the mountains, but you've also spent quite a fair bit of time on the ocean. Yep. You're a sailor, you're a surfer, you're a free diver, spear fisherman, all that. And you worked in your main job for the last 15 years. You've been a, you've been working in film and yep. as a director of photography. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you worked on this thing called uh, I'm going to balls it up. Timana Ote. Uh, Timana Ote Moana. That which means that it's like the charisma of the ocean, you know. It's uh, the is the and mana is like a word meaning charisma. It can mean a lot of things, but it's the spirit or that's Polynesian that word. Yeah. Yep, yeah. And you've got an adept ability to speak a bit of Polynesian because I imagine it's it's, it's it shares similar um, attributes in the pronunciation as uh, Maori. Yeah, it, it's so it's it's Maori in New Zealand, and um, you know that's also through the Cook Islands and and uh, other small pockets. But it, the language is is very similar. 
Uh, in Hawaii, they have a very similar sound. And even funny enough, in Indonesia here, the word for you know fish is ikan, and it's ika in Māori, and for the word for ear is taringa in Māori, and it's talinga here. So, so there's I think that um, the Polynesians came from this area, and uh, they've kind oh, of did left they? It. Yeah. Is that is that a a, a known uh, pattern of movement that anthropologists or historians have? Yeah, they said, well, they said the sort of Māori came from the society in Marquias Islands and potentially even Taiwan before that. So, so there's been a movement of of they know, grew in size. Yeah, yeah, they, they did. They grew massively in size. Because yeah. there are not many Indonesians who would match the average Maori. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was a uh, it was a, it was a southward migration. There were think there were many migrations, and, and um, you know, I'm no historian, but uh, there were many migrations, and and uh, the, the ones that penetrated the furthest obviously got to New Zealand. So, the reason you speak Maori is because you're part Maori. Yeah, uh, my mum. My mum's Māori and uh, she has Māori heritage um, and I grew up with, you know, a few words here. We all grew up in school being able to sing a few songs and you know, have a few words and then later in, in life I got a, a chance through university to be able to learn te reo and, uh, you know, just not not to a, a place comfortably now where I could say I was fully fluent because uh, like any language you need to practice mm. it and the amount of travelling I've done means I can't speak it as all the time but but I understand more than I can than I can speak um, but it also draws you closer to the culture well as a Kiwi you're still learning English as well of course I, absolutely and, and I always I always cock that up and throw the odd expletive <laughs> in there and, and like, yeah. people are like what the you're, hell you're, you're in the right place for that <laughs> but the the uh, the charisma of the ocean mm. we can say the spirit the spirit, spirit of, the of the ocean maybe a bit see what I did there I didn't yeah. have to pronounce it again yeah you did it really um, well tell me about that because that that was a. F- you've told me a few little anecdotes from that, and it sounds fascinating. But it's a completely different experience of being out on the wide open ocean. These guys who are navigating using just the stars and the ocean currents and the likes. That's right. Yeah, I was very lucky to be a part of that, and to be quite honest, I, was, I came in at the end of it. Um, and a, a director, a friend of mine, asked me to come in and, and just fill in a few gaps on a lot of footage that was already shot. Um, and we had done some stuff on Waka already. So the the vessels are called waka, and uh, they're basically these seventy foot or so uh, catamarans, made of wood typically. But uh, these particular boats on this voyage were made of fiberglass, and they were put together. The whole um, voyage was put together by a German philanthropist, Dieter, who was actually coming down to the South Pacific in search of the white whale after he sold his company and retired. And he took a, f- a fond, he had a keenness for the ocean, and he came down. Is that a mythical white whale out of Moby Dick, or is there a white whale? There is a white whale. Oh, there is. Yeah, and apparently he found it. Um, oh. Yeah, but I, but I never got to talk to what him species? about that. What species? And what? Yeah, no, what brand of whale? I is think it? it was the uh, the whitest. Uh, I'm, no, I'm just going to make stuff up here. <laughs> is, but is it a blue whale gone white? Or is it a- <laughs> I, I honestly have no idea. No. Okay. I just knew that that's the reason he came down to to you know to come find this thing. Um, and as he was, as he got down here, he found that these uh, these Polynesians were were all landlocked, and the stories he had read of these great migrations and these incredible sailors of over thousands of years rafted these things together made of wood and, and lashed with rope, and were able to go back and forth for thousands of kilometres, just using um, you know primitive technology, uh, and and mostly memory. So uh, he said, well, I'm going to fix that. So he built, I think, at that time, maybe seven or, or five 
a wokka made of fiberglass but modelled traditionally and then lashed traditionally with, with wood. So the, you know you have these these two hulls obviously, and then you have these cross members that are that are lashed together in this kind of traditional pattern, and it's set together to uh, to make voyaging societies and then kind of reinvigorate the the Polynesian uh, seafaring culture. Um, and by that stage, there was already a groundswell of of stuff going on. Um, the Hawaiians had a boat called Hokalea, and uh, that boat had already made some navigations around the Pacific and already had a lot of press around it and. And some some really sort of famed. I think Patagonia have done a book on it, haven't they? Yeah, uh, there's there's been a number yeah. of, of things done with. Um, what, are you, what are you looking over there for? There's a. Oh, there was a flicker. Oh no. Um, and so and <laughs> Moyen so, was falling asleep. Right, yeah, right. Head okay. you, you good? You good? <laughs> you need a coffee? <laughs> <laughs> I think we all need a coffee. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this 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 guy Dieter, he he was quite wealthy, and he and he put together a sum of money, and I think quite a lot of money, like twenty million bucks or something. He built these uh, these waka, and he gifted them to each of the Polynesian countries or a number of countries, and said, "There you go, go for it." Uh, but it wasn't quite as easy as that because there weren't people that really knew the knowledge. There weren't enough of them. Right, they'd forgotten. Yeah. There's a couple of, uh, of Māori people um, who, are, who are very well known now who, who had that knowledge and were starting to seed it out already. And uh, there, was, there was a boat uh, built by uh, Hector Busby, and I've done work with him as well recently. He's, he's now dead, but he's become very famous as, a, as one of the pioneers. Um, and they... He, sorry, he's Māori, is he? Yeah, Hector? yeah. yeah. And uh, and he had, had retired from his company and, and built his own uh, his own boat his own walker, and uh, and decided to to do some sailing as well and done some quite heroic adventures and it was tied in with the Hawaiians as well, so with um, a couple of these these known uh, sailors that that managed to pull together a team of of people to train up and these young navigators and uh, and and start this voyage. And so the voyage was to go right around the Pacific and connect all the islands together and then uh, reach the west coast of the US and do a kind of a, a circuit, if you like. What's the distance from that? Oh, that's a really good question, Mike. Um, I, I don't, Come on, you're I don't a sailor, aren't you? Yeah. Don't let me down, no. There's some huge distances out there in the Pacific. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You I'll can know. get it wrong by yeah. a few thousand kilometers. Especially when the wind throws you off course. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, so, so the voyage had more or less taken place, and uh, I'd been, you know, part of uh, other trips involved in the Pacific. Yeah, no, um, it's okay. I'm just doing the camera, just, just double checking. Sure, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. listening. And, um, and then, then I was I was tasked to go out and kind of fill in gaps and, and interview some of the people that had been out there and and you know, put together this big show because there was just thousands and thousands of hours of footage, and um, and we'd gone out on some pretty big sailing legs. Um, I was also involved in another couple of other shows with Waka, so I'd sort of been on the boats already, and I'd fallen in love with them. Yeah. What was it about them that simplicity? You know, I mean, we were we were they compared to what though? Because I'm not a sailor. I've been oh. on sailing boats. I've spent two weeks on sailing boats, and I am captivated by it. But I don't know anything about it. So okay. When you say simplicity, what it has oars? There's no screws in the boat. There's nothing screwed together. It's all lashed by rope. Um, the 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 tiller, if you like, is this thing called a hoy, and it's just a huge tree. Tiller's the steering wheel, right? Yeah, but it's like a huge tree that's carved out. So you're holding onto this this tree, 
and it can just throw you like a bucking bronco across the deck you know when it hits water um the sails don't have any winches you gotta be strong to be the tiller captain yeah you've got to kind of let the ocean guide it and then you can just kind of pull it at various times and it takes a long time obviously i've i was i struggled with that that hoy for 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 many many uh hours when i was on watch you know uh and then there's no there's no winches so everything's manually hoisted and the sails are all uh, manually stitched together you know by hand and um so it just means that if anything goes wrong you can fix it out there got it you know to a point yeah, obviously you're not reliant on a piece of equipment that you ordered specially that made of carbon fiber that cost five thousand dollars. Yeah, it has to be replaced, and you know you can't you can't get around using it. So, um, and uh, so I mean these things they they they're not overly uh, uh, they don't have a massive sale plan. Um, you know you can't you can't go fast and them. You're not going to break records or anything like that. But you know they, they can go seven knots pretty reliably. And what about when there's no wind? Then you then you're back going backwards basically, <laughs> where you just, just floating waiting, water. just floating yeah. around. And that Literally, we sailed from New Zealand to Rarotonga and um, Rarotonga, was, yeah, in the Cook Islands. Yeah, I've been there. It should have taken us about thirteen days, maybe. maybe you say it better days. though, Rarotonga. Rarotonga, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, it took us eighteen days, and we were, we were out there for you know just some and some days just just bobbing, really just hanging out, just. Wait, it running out of water. <laughs> just kind of like going, come on, wind. Um, and there's no, there's no phone reception. There's, there's nothing. You're just out there singing songs and listen to beats filming. on your phone. Yeah, and filming. Of course, I was out there filming. Yeah. So, but so you were filming on the boats, and also having to take your turn at the tiller. Yeah. Is that normal, or is that just because you're an obsessed sailor? No, it was just uh, you know when you, when you're on a walker, when you're on any boat actually, um, you know you're 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 part of the the, the the steam of it. You know you've got to be every day. You've got to perform duties, and it might just be things like cooking and cleaning, uh, just the general maintenance, and it just makes everyone's life easier. Unless you're a paying client, obviously, then you just sit back and you know mm. enjoy the view. Uh, and then uh, in between those times, I would, uh, and obviously they gave me freedom to say, well, if I was on watch and something that needed to be filmed came up, then I'd just grab my camera and, and they sort of gave me the opportunity to, to film. But, but there was no power. So on these walker, they're so simple. There's, no, there's nowhere to hang out indoors except your bunk, which is literally a tiny little bunk. And uh, on the top side, there's like this one very small hut where you, you have the charts there and so you can sort of sense where we are. Um, there's no electricity. There's a battery system which is run by solar panels, uh, mostly for the solar engines which Dieter had invented, which were just amazing things, and they could just help get the walker in through narrow passage and you know into the reef systems and stuff. And um, and we had a small generator for for us for the uh, cameras to recharge the batteries on the cameras and stuff. Uh, and that simplicity, get back going back to that simplicity, it just feels like. You don't have any distractions, and you're just there absorbing every second. Yeah, I was about. Well, I am going to ask. You're when you, when we're in the mountains, uh, senses are tuned differently. They have to because it's high risk, and because there's no distraction. And typically, the modern person, their senses are so dulled. I've lived in the Amazon rainforest for months on end, and with the Shipibo, who are some of the native indigenous people that live outside of Iquitos and I've walked through the forest with some of these old shamans who are in their 
70s and 80s. They don't actually, they, they literally don't know how old they are. They know that they're younger than 100 and <laughs> over 70. And, but the way they walk through the forest, their, their senses are so attuned in, so, to such a different level of hearing. So I might hear a bird that's in the first 50 meters and it's, but they're hearing beyond that 500 meters away and they're picking up something. And I know because I'm asking them as I'm going through, when you cocked your head like that, and I'm, they don't speak even Spanish, so I'm speaking through a translator. When you cocked your head like that to that bird, what were you hearing? And they're like, well, we weren't listening to that bird. We were listening to that bird. I'm like, oh, I didn't hear that bird. It was way too far out of my range. Not necessarily because my hearing's not as good, but it's not attuned to what's going on all the way over there. And they're sniffing and they're looking and, you know, they're completely seeing the world in a different way and i imagine i haven't spent a great deal of time on the ocean but i would imagine over a, a period of time you become attuned to the ocean in a different way that's right and, and um you know for me I've, I've kind of again i feel i feel when you go out on these adventures people think oh gosh you've done so many adventures you're a real adventurer and i'm like wow you should meet the people that mm. i've been out there with yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> i feel like pretty lame in comparison um, and some of these navigators, and they're incredible. You know, they can put their hand in the water and sense ocean currents. I'm just going to ask about this. Right, and you know, and they're sensing things that that no one can. They 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 can measure boat speed by bits of bubbles going by, and um, you know, to see the clouds, the changes in clouds, and and know exactly what's coming up, and just maintain real calm. You know, you like this thing is just lashed together with wood, and we're about to go into like four seven on the Beaufort scale. Did that happen? Did you go into yeah, a 47? I've, I've been in some, and, and we, 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 yeah, we went through some pretty big storms where tell I us, thought, Tell us, what was, what was the biggest storm you went through? Uh, well, there was this one, there was one storm where, where we, um, I woke up, I basically woke up because I was, I was levitating off my bunk and coming down, <laughs> crashing down onto it. That wasn't Carver you'd been drinking it, no. before you'd gone to sleep? Yeah, there's a funny story about that I'll tell you later too. Um, but... Um, and I was like, what the hell's going on? So I, so I sort of popped up, and as soon as I opened the hatch, it smashed open, all right? And then I realized that, you know, there's probably like 80, 80 knot gusts out there, and, and we would have had, like, a, we're ro rolling through a 12-meter swell. And, um, and what had happened was, is the last watch crew, as far as I know, and, and respect to any watch crew that are listening to this who were on that, on that, on that voyage, um, had kind of uh, overpowered or put too much uh, sail up, you know, there wasn't enough reef in the in the main. And because you're uh, not using any mechanical advantage, it's just lashed, you know, just... Um, Do you want to explain what the reef is? Because I only, I have a layman's... Oh, I say, sure, sure. So so sails, um, you know, when, when you when you have a mainsail, you can pull it all the way to the top of the mast, right? Uh, or you can only pull it up part way up, and um, along the, along the um, horizontal axis of the uh, the main, you've got holes where you can cleat the sail down so you can only put half the sail up or a part you know part of the sail up and that's called reefing so you go slower yeah so you just don't have as much sail up and you're not yep. getting as, as much wind yep. that's right and what had happened is they'd had quite a lot more sail up and it, and it wasn't as reefed as much as it should have and we got into the squall which is a, you know a big a big storm system and um and these gusts were you know, crazy crazy gusts the sky basically had gone amber orange all around us so there was this ominous kind of mm. feeling of it. And I came up and immediately I was just so excited because there was just, and then I got up and there was eight people on the hoy. 
there's eight people wow. and they're just like everyone's holding on and where the solar engines were there's these kind of wooden flaps on the deck and they were just bursting open and then like a, a six meter jet of wave would come pouring through that and just wet everyone and people would just swim around the deck for a while and find their feet and, and were you all harnessed in some of us were and it was all happening very fast and and um obviously the skipper frank at the time he was uh he was you know trying to get everyone you know poison in, in good order in good order i mean <laughs> we could have one of the one so if anyone had gone over there was there was goodbye you yeah. do, there's no way we could find them yeah. um and um and i just remember uh coming up and just being so excited you know and looking down and seeing these waves that were like the size of the mast so and that we're, we're rolling through them and and all of a sudden you was lost inside this monster water system and then you come up to the other side of it now you're on the top of it and you're about to go down the other side and things start shaking and because it's lashed together i could see the deck like piano keys just, just, just sort of, and they're just moving and i was like well, this is going to fall apart you know it, it's 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 wow it's it's going to fall apart that, um, I, I i'm actually that scares me i'd, <laughs> I'd rather be in the proximity of an avalanche than that because it just feels so disconnected from everything that you value in the other world your you know, home and be like no one's coming for you are they no, no one a helicopter can come into the mountains and help you out no one's coming to you out there no, i remember feeling like you know there were people that were very scared because they hadn't been out there before and you could just see this the fear in their face and i remember um even from my days of mountaineering is uh, being scared means that you would make decisions that that weren't sometimes the right one you know and uh, you're a bit tense and you'd make the wrong decision so I just decided to put a smile on my face and just enjoy the ride how and long then, did did it go on for the storm um probably went on for for a good you know, several hours you know um and then uh Hotu Hotu is a, a, a an amazing amazing uh skipper and navigator and uh, orator of Maori tanga Maori culture and he's and he was there, and his Hotoroa Barkley Kerr. And uh, part of, he was our, our he was our presenter on the show, and also the navigator. And I remember just looking at Hutu, and he's just leaning up against the deck, just going, "Yeah, cool, cool, yeah, all right, nice, yeah, okay." <laughs> and and I just realised this man had seen quite a lot of stuff, you know. And but he just maintained this cool posure, composure, and that's uh, what you need. And I was like, "This is the guy I want to be around." And I was like, "Literally, Hutu." Are when we going to be okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when it, he starts praying, that's when you know it's bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Frank, of course, was concerned for everybody's crew, and he's the skipper, so he was, you know, running around being being a skipper and shouting at people and making sure that they're wearing their their vests. I mean, a vest isn't going to help you, but we we're trying to tie on where we mm. could. Yeah. Yeah. What's the wildlife like when you're out in those places? I mean, are you seeing special yeah creatures that you wouldn't? anywhere else um well the strange part about being in the open water is you see less than you do when you're closer to land which is a really good reason to want to be part of efforts to save the you know sort of 25 nautical mile radius out from land because that's unfortunately where such a huge part of the biodiversity exists when you get further out you get surprised by whales and and uh, dolphins obviously these big mammals that go off can do these huge distances um you see less and less birds you know the pelagic fish you'll you'll catch pelagic fish and see you know some tuna and stuff the ones that can swim the furthest away from land um 
but uh, typically, you know, it's very it's very still out there. It's very quiet. It's like being back in the mountains. It's really just nothing. It's so deep, isn't it? It's so when deep. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Most mean, of the life is in the first 30 to 50 meters of the, I mean, it's certainly with yeah. coral and the likes, and the coral is the, for um, many species, is the, the home or the breeding ground. And yeah. the deeper you go out there, I guess it's either big whales or those freaky things that are all the way thousands of meters down of below that yeah. haven't seen light in their entire <laughs> Absolutely. lives. Absolutely. So. But you're going between islands and stuff. And yeah. That's right. That's right. We're, and and you know, it was just for me having a navigator who's only navigating with the stars and the sun and and using cloud systems. And then Hortu says it's going to pop up over there. I say what? He says, "You watch, Rarotonga. Rarotonga is going to pop up just there." And then, shortly enough, like a few hours later, just pops up exactly where he said it was. And I was like, "How the hell? How many days have you have you been navigating towards Rarotonga at this point?" We hadn't seen land for 18 days. And he, and so, so he's not got any GPS systems. Has he got maps? We have charts. Charts. Um, and uh, the charts typically, I mean, we have on every, in every vessel that goes out into the water, especially in big crossings and stuff, you have what's called an AIS system. And that's a locator so that, mm. you know, the, the rescue systems can, rescue people can find you or whatever, and, and other boats too. And you want to be able to see container ships. So if you're traveling in the night and a, you're going through a container alley, you want to be able to know where these boats are and stuff. So AIS is very important. So um, having a chart and knowing where you are on that chart just so that you can register if you're in a shipping channel. Um, the skipper would typically have hold of that chart and, and um, he may use that uh, to help some of the younger navigators to learn about the ocean and, and how far we've drifted and be able to explain that. So. So that's the main reason for the charts, but they're not needed. And uh, Hortu could just could guide a vessel all the way from one place to another. What's he doing? Because I've seen, I've watched Moana twice with my kids, and there's a hand in the air making a. Sh- and I don't mean that disrespectfully. This is my only uh, view of anyone. It's, and I'm assuming it comes from some kind of credible piece but they're literally shaping hands against the stars and like you said feeling the water and the currents how, how are they taking the information in so if you hold your hand straight out in front of you and um, there's a certain thing you can do with your fingers uh, it's it's you can basically um, that for most people anyway it's four degrees between the two fingers so if you hold oh, your fingers out like this you know yeah. and then so from there to there is four degrees, is there's four degrees, and and those in um, navigational yep. culture are called houses. God, that's got a lot of room for error, though, isn't it? <laughs> it does have room for error, but what you'll do is you'll match up that finger against a, a star or the sun or a part of the the horizon, right. which is further away. So so that stays more or less fixed. So then you can go, you th- put your thumb against that star there and you can move across to there. Then you know from, from that, f- there's four degrees, from there is four degrees. So then you go, well, this, and then you know from memory of the pattern of the stars that when you see that star, that means that in a certain amount of time, this one will pop up two hand shapes or two dots of four degrees, eight degrees over here. So then you can now track how fast you're going with the boat speed, measuring the hull speed against how far those stars pop up so there's a, there's a time between that star popping up and this star popping up and then uh, you're able to say okay well, we're going in this direction at this speed just based on that um, you'll be you'll be getting drift and all sorts of other things as well and you'll have clouds where you, where you obviously can't see so you've just got to measure your boat speed 
and uh, when the stars come back together you go okay there's that star oh now we've drifted this far now so you can you can and that's all happening it. intuitively they're not like writing down lots of notes and no it's all done by memory yeah that's incredible and um and they will they'll know the stars very very well and uh, some of these master navigators they just spend their life learning the stars and 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 then also they're looking at bird life and fish life and they'll know by a certain species how far away they are from the sea because sometimes you can you can see a, a certain fish or a bird and you can't see the land so you go okay cool we're in within landfall some sometime maybe a day or two um so that's kind of a first you know indication and then the ocean currents and that's where it gets a bit mystical you know being able to feel the ocean currents and, and i think there's only very few people that can sense that and i can't not mention it but <laughs> the first time i met you or we had a coffee specifically to talk about your work you sent me and my business partner jake off both in hysterics and also we i think we <laughs> called bs on you yeah because you said that you'd you knew of uh a navigator who used his testicles in the water to <laughs> navigate the ocean currents yeah i i must admit i we many people have said that to me when i've recounted that story and it was i was in tahiti on another show and um and basically it was uh yeah it was a completely different show which one um it? it was it was we were fam- <laughs> we started off shooting a show on Fafaite, which is the um tahitian waka making a trip back home to take one of the famous uh, um, navigators who perished in new zealand and were, they were, they were going to take the message back to new zealand that you know um, they were going to basically redo that trip in, in his name, right? And to be say that the Tahitians have arrived back to to, to mm. take this this body, or at least participate in this journey. Um, and sorry, Anna, out there, if I've got this slightly wrong, but um, but it was great to be a part of that of that journey. Um, and while we're there, we met a woman who had been on this documentary, and she was she was a very smart lady, and I think she might have been Dutch in origin, and she told us this story. And it was somewhere off near the Solomon Islands, and she said, "Yeah, I've got photos." And she showed us the photos of these fishing walkers. So they're like smaller ones, and they have these kind of chairs at the back where the navigator sits and hangs his testicles into the water <laughs> to sense the ocean currents. Wait, how high are the chairs off of the water? I, I don't know, or how Maybe high? They've got really long testicles. Yeah, <laughs> no, they're stretching them. <laughs> yeah, I, or I, they're sitting on the base of the boat i mean i i was but you saw you saw photos of the boats or you saw photos of these elongated I testicles saw, no I, I, well, I wasn't checking out of the testicles there but i definitely saw someone sitting in this navigation chair navigational chair and then her stories of this you know and she was quite she was keen to raise some funds to to develop this show and since then i've been looking for that show so she may not have developed the funds <laughs> Or maybe the guys in the chair weren't actually guys in the chair. Maybe they're a woman. <laughs> Who knows? Although it wouldn't really work if it was a woman. So um, anyway, I don't, I don't see how it would work with a guy. Now, I mean, you know, a man's testicles are typically quite sensitive, but just how sensitive for ocean currents? We're going to have to look that one up at some point. Oh, I know, and, and keep I'm going I'm on it. Desperately keen to fight. I've stopped telling that story as a result, yeah. just in, ca- you know, yeah. in case it never happened. But but I did see the photos, and uh, you know, I was very. Yeah, it still amuses it. me even like the 15th time I've asked you about <laughs> it <laughs> so you your your job yeah I mean I know you work on commercials and you work on big movies you worked on Lord of the Rings you worked on Avatar and all of that the, the big big movies 
But part of your job when you go into these places is to communicate through image and sound the experience of nature and bring that back into people's homes. And I wonder whether you, well, how often do you ever can get concerned about the more you popularize wild places, the more they become humanized, the more that people are coming into them. It's a bit like climbing walls. As When I was climbing 30, when I started climbing 32, 33 years ago, it was still such a niche sport. And I'd go to the local climbing area in the woods near my home and there's almost no one there. there whole days when you see no one. And if you'd ever, you see a school group come along once in a while and that would be the big, now you go to these places and it's just, it's overrun. When we lived in the US, Joshua Tree National Park, the first time I went there, again, over 30 years ago, there were hundreds of camping spaces all over the park available. Now you can't get a camping space for love nor money because there's just thousands and thousands of people appearing. And, uh, you have a responsibility as a cameraman who's who's capturing the wild because obviously if you present that there's a treasure tre- chest of experience and, and and all of this amazing incredible wonderful whatever it is natural resources in these places you're sort of giving it away aren't you to people and I wonder whether you thought about that much I think if you're if you're doing like travel shows or you know your your content is promotional then you could be seen to be giving up some of these spots but even so um, people aren't going to I mean going to the wild requires a lot of resources and some of the more far-flung places they'll probably remain that way and especially some of the places I've been to in the Sahara Desert or across the Gobi Desert in Mongolia and um, you know to go there is, is is pretty hectic it does it's not for the faint-hearted mm. Um, you can't just get a latte whenever you want, you know. In fact, you can't even get coffee half the time. So, you know, you've got to go fully prepared, and it's an expedition. And um, I don't feel like those places, those ones that I, I've photographed, are in danger of becoming popularized anytime soon. Um, of course, a lot of the subject matter uh, that I film is people in nature, so it's all about the people doing extraordinary things or. And I'll, and I'll go through some of these wilderness zones and, and part of the show will be going through urban areas as well and, you know, and, and all sorts. So um, this, I've, I've never really just focused on one area in my work. Uh, that would be more kind of the travel, you know, shows. And um, the, the flip side to my question, actually, is the opposite of what I've just said there, which is that rather than encouraging people to go into those places and... I had this conversation with a producer at the BBC who works on in the natural history um, section of the BBC. And she said, look, we actually think that what we do is protecting nature because if you've seen it on your screens, yes, a certain percentage will want to go there. But at some point, people may even immerse themselves in VR. And that will be enough for them. And so it will protect those places from being overrun by humans and also you can't protect what you don't love and so through cinematography and great storytelling you can encourage people to to 
to love and be motivated to protect those places. And I and I I would love that job that. actually is to go and shoot VR. Where all I have to do is just go and enjoy myself with uh, four cameras strapped to my <laughs> strapped head. Strapped to you, yeah. I'd be like, this is a great job, and then <laughs> yeah. other people can enjoy what they're seeing at home, you know. And then I don't have to tell stories. I can just ride around on a on a big old motorbike, or <laughs> that'd be that'd be pretty fun. Have you got favourite places from all of your years of travel and ski guiding and cinematography and the likes? Places that really you think about if you you could just snap your fingers and go back to? Yeah, it's it's really funny. I grew up in probably paradise on earth and I didn't even know it. Um, you know, when, when you grow up in New Zealand, uh, I grew up in a tourist town called Lake Taupo and, and um, we had just a huge amount of adventurers there. And, and I, I just had no idea because I thought everyone, my normal was was just these people in this town. And so when I started traveling, I was like, wow, why is everyone so boring? <laughs> you know, to a point. Uh, I, I know um, that's not the right way to view life now, but and, I, and it was just when I first started out, I was like, you know, why, and people would go, let's go to this amazing beach. And I'm like, that's not an amazing beach. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been to the far north in New Zealand or, you know, the Catlins in the South Island and there's extraordinary beaches where you've got whales and dolphins going by and there's no one for miles. And um, these just rolling golden sand beaches. And then getting on the internet and saying the ten best beaches on earth, and New Zealand doesn't appear in them. I'm like, that's great. <laughs> then, yeah, New Zealand Tourist Board has done a great job there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I kind of grew up really spoilt, to be honest. And so I must say that um, in all the places I've travelled, I sort of come back and go, wow, well, New Zealand's a pretty fascinating place, you know. Um, when it comes to favourite places now, I think as I've got older, my my tastes have changed somewhat, and I've become a bit of a foodie. And so. I've been to places where the food is disastrous and it just makes you feel like the expedition has gone flat. Mm. You know, you're like, I'm in this amazing mountain in Kazakhstan, you know, I've been in Kazakhstan and, and the food is god awful. You know, in Mongolia, the food is just horrendous, you know. Um, but but you obviously that quickly overcome that with, a, with this great sense of adventure and if you're well prepared and then you can take all your creature comforts with you. So, so I must say that um, now I sort of you know, balance great, great places to travel with uh, a certain amount of luxury. Maybe I'm just become a glamper. Mm, don't say that, my goodness. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yes. that's the that's the <laughs> ultimate wrong direction turnaround from being a mountain guide to becoming a glamper. I know, I know. But there's something like that. Even in mountaineering and mountain guiding, you just take little luxuries mm. and, and it becomes sort of something. Um, Listen, I think uh, being in the Sahara was, was an incredible experience because... Which parts were you in? Uh, well, we travelled in from Morocco uh, and all the way through Mauritania uh, and across Mali and into Senegal. So it's a, you know, it's a, a fair whack north-south yeah. traverse, you know. What uh, was that filming? Uh, that was following or pursuing uh, this eclectic British adventurer who had invented a flying car and he wanted to go from London to Timbuktu in a flying car. So we started in London, obviously, and uh, we flew across the um, the English Channel, and then we drove across. You know, Europe this thing floats? No, it doesn't float. No, it's more like a like a sand buggy with a paraglider that pops out. And um, okay, and a, so it was a it was a soft wing. Yeah, not fixed. Yeah, yeah, and then you sort of pack it away, and, and away you go again. And um, then uh, I flew across the Gibraltar Strait. Uh, and into Africa and then, and then drove down through there flying and driving through Africa 
you know, getting to checkpoints and they're like, this thing flies across borders, doesn't it? And they're like immediately go, you know, we're not letting you through. So we had to go to another border and cut the propeller off and uh, take all the stickers off the side of it. So, so it looked like a car. So it looked like a And then car. put it all back on again. Exactly. So, um, but the Sahara Desert was really amazing because, you know, most people think of it as just a big yellow sand mountainscape. And it is that. But um, when you start to meet some of these nomadic um, mm. Tuaregs, yeah. and they've and got the like 100, 100 words for sand, different types mm. of sand, you know, and, and also these, these incredible granite rock shapes, and then some of these microscopic plants, and, and you start to realize that it's just such an incredible environment, and it's pretty delicate too. Um, and you, you, you just get a real sense that, that this is an environment that most people don't ever get to see, and I was very lucky to see that. And I've always wanted to go back, actually, and go across the Sahara, you know, and there's in some kind of expedition truck or a couple of motorbikes or whatever and just have a have a good time and not be so much focused on a documentary. I'd join you on a motorbike. So I wouldn't do it like I did the first time, which is I ran 150 miles of it. Yeah, that Well, 151 crazy. miles, actually, in the Marathon de Salmo. And you don't have much time to stop and smell the roses. And, and you know, not That's that there's any roses life. growing there. That's but um, actually, Morocco is my favorite country in the world to visit. Yeah. For me, it's such a, I, I love that desert environment that also then you, you'll be going along these trails for m hours and miles and then all of a sudden you turn a bend and there's this oasis of green hidden in amongst all the endless red dust and dirt and sand and, and then you just see hundreds of houses along a river uh, valley. Uh, and it just seems like such an alien world. I also love the, the way that Moroccan Islamic culture is presented yeah. to the world as well it's so elegant and and the food's incredible typically. i love morocco too i really really had a, had a nice time in morocco the food's amazing it's like you say those those little oasis the culture the colors the tiles everything it's just really a, a really special place yeah it's really special yeah so you live in bali now yeah most of the time but you came here because of family and commitments and the likes but you've been coming here for 12 years, did you say? Yeah. My, my first trip was, was 12 years ago. Yeah. So obviously we, our business is an environmental one. We're doing organic farming at the back here. We're picking up all the litter and the garbage. And we're doing our little bit to make Bali a better place. I've only been here a year and a half and I've not really seen it with all the tourists. They're all starting to come back now. As we've seen, we went out for dinner a couple of nights ago and there's restaurants are popping up literally in a week. In places where before there was green paddy fields and who knows what was living in those paddy fields but what are the changes that you've seen here in the last 12 years because i know you as a as a, a cameraman you have a different eye for things as well you know you probably yeah. noticed in that attunement that we were talking about in the mountains and the ocean you're also attuned to visually to see things probably a bit more clearly and accurately than most yeah actually i, I studied tourism at university as well so I saw that um, on your CV, but it took me so long to read through your CV. There's so much <laughs> on it. it um, yes, I, I we. I mean, it, so I've always been intrigued about how tourism grows and and you know the benefits it has for the local population versus the uh, the not so good things when it starts to grow too fast or too far. Um, and this place is a victim of its own success, isn't it? It is, and I think right now it's um, it's growing rapidly. 
very rapidly. Um, but it always has actually, Mike. You know, even before I came, it was growing fast. So, you know, it went from Kuta to Ligian to Semenyak to, you know, Brawa to... It just kept... The, 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 the movement of people and progress just keeps going further up the coast. And we've seen it here. We're in Sese today. And already there's new buildings popping up in the rice paddies. And, and you told me the other day of... A, I was always under the impression that Sese was going to be protected by the Banja uh, to be able to maintain some of these green areas. But the Banja being the local, essentially like the council that runs its own area. I'm just explaining for people that don't know what that word means. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I think when you have such a disparity of, of income or uh, currency, then money talks, mm. you know, and money can change people. And they may have really good intentions to start with about, you know, keeping the green areas the green areas, but then a big wad of cash lands on the table and, and that's the start. Which changes not only their lives, but their great, probably their children and their grandchildren's lives yeah, as well. Absolutely. You know, it kind of starts to bring them up a, a couple of pegs, but, but, but not very much and not enough potentially for the amount of growth because everything starts to get more expensive here. Um, my fear is that uh, because of the speed of the growth, the infrastructure can't keep up. And already we're seeing you know, big pollution problems before corona. We had some major pollution problems here, and, and then that starts to affect the user experience, the tourist experience. You know? And a lot of fr- my friends are like, oh, I'll never go back to Bali. Mm. It's just full of rubbish. And, um, and it's full of people trying to rip you off. And there was a time actually uh, back in the, the 90s, I've been told that Bali used to be really dangerous place to be i don't sense that now at all um but for me it feels like the safest place i've ever lived yeah but i think when 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 tourism first comes in there's some people locals that do really well out of it and some that don't and then they get a little bit dark on it and and they if especially the the procrastinators are the last ones to get on it they try to find less savory ways to make money off the tourists Mm. and and that leads to sort of a a poor experience people getting mugged or whatever um, and it used to be, be quite dangerous, and, and now um, there's so many expats that, that have made it home, and um, there's, there's you know p- tourism's been allowed to prosper here, and that, that it's kind of you don't see so much of that anymore. But I just fear that that, that user experience, that the tourist experience, might start to get a bit diluted as, as we see the return of, of people coming back in droves. Um, and um, like any Southeast Asian country, um, you know the government systems here. are sometimes you know, not as well organized as we're used to back home and they let things slip a little bit more and and uh you know you can always pay people off to have things done and and uh and i, and I think that that infrastructure will, will really suffer and but thankfully there's people you know bullies or international people living here who have made it their home and like yourself are trying to make a change and are trying to uh bring the locals up to speed or, or help the locals with their own practice or uh, try to dissuade some of the the poor practice that is going on with tourism and burning plastic, letting it go into the ocean, all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah, I mean we come from a privileged position in that our own countries have done it years before, made the mess, and now we can stand on a box and start preaching. But I actually I don't. I mean I I'm the last person to preach to anyone, but I think it's we have that experience to be able to say, hey, look, there is a better way of doing it, and Actually, if you look at the increase in ecotourism and people's desire to go to places for the natural environment, not just for the cheap package deals and the 
cheap booze. Bali could be one of the places that people come to for ecotourism. Within a relatively short period of time, 10 years or so, you could transform the approach. But you're absolutely right about the the garbage. Uh, I interviewed Tim Fajal on this podcast and he read out a review uh, from a French farmer who's an organic farmer who'd come over here to do the walk that Tim does. He walks through paddy fields 20 miles or something. You know Tim. Yeah. And uh, Tim read this review and the guy said, look, I, I'm totally aligned with the way you do your farming. It is everything. Uh, the, the natural environment in Bali was absolutely beautiful. The people are the friendliest, kindest. The temples, the ceremonies, the guy was, it was just, it was this, look, it is an incredible place. It was um, compliment after compliment. Then he said, but I will never come back and I will never encourage anyone else to come to Bali because of the garbage. My heart is sunk because of the garbage, seeing people burning it and seeing it in the rivers and the tributaries and in the piles. And, but it's a simple problem. You know, it's not like we're saying you have to change the culture. You have to change one aspect of it, which is, create a system to put in place and encourage people through education like they did in the UK in the 80s when people threw garbage everywhere I mean my street looked like a tip Mm. poor area but it still looked like a tip you don't see litter there now and that's because in the 80s the government did big campaigns around shaming people essentially that if you threw garbage in the street it made you a, a, a lesser part of your community which is true do you know what's interesting which just dawned on me now is um you know what where our governments have what they've done is they've managed to make it unvisible you know it, that's so, a good so, point yeah so it's not like it's not there it's just there's there's, there's monster loads of it sitting in a, a facility which is probably going to get packed and sent off to china mm. um no they don't take it anymore they don't right. take foreign wasters from okay. what i understand they'll, but we still have a mess they'll send it to indonesia instead yeah yeah, whereas whereas actually, you know, in Indonesia, you get to see how much trash you're using because it's all around you. Yeah, um, I've been in India for eight months uh, before this, just a couple of weeks ago, and and um, you know, you go into some of these uh, these very poor areas, these ghettos, and there's just piles of rubbish just piling up, and then people are living around it. In fact, some of the houses are made out of rubbish, uh, and there's, that's a problem that just they cannot fix. You know, they can probably stop using it, but that rubbish will just be there for eternity at this stage, you know. Yeah. Whereas at least in Indonesia, there's a chance or a sense that we might be able to fix it because it hasn't quite happened like India yet, and there may be a good chance, but we can see how much we're using. We can see how much the locals are using. And actually, to be quite honest, even though you see rubbish here, it's on a small scale to actually what we're using. Yeah. And, um, you know, I went to Wandsworth Tip once, it's a very long story, but I went looking for something that accidentally got thrown away, and I just saw dozens and dozens and dozens of trucks coming in and pouring into this huge compaction system, and it was quite amazing. And in, in, in London, you know, how much trash? Oh yeah, that we the using. average Londoner compared to the average Balinese person is probably a large family of in Bali doesn't create the same amount of trash as an average single Londoner or Californian or. That's I don't right. know what the numbers are, but I would imagine. But the, f- the but the funny thing is, is like they're being picked on for oh my god, the way they use plastic and stuff like that. You know, of course. Yeah. When you look at what we do, I mean, our streets are nice and clean because it's just shipped away and sent somewhere yeah. else. And we're also paying large amounts of taxes to have it all cleaned. 
Yeah. Uh, one question, one final question, because it's getting hot in here. Mm. I'm going to need to fix the aircon. I'm quite proud of our podcast uh, room that we've had built, but we it's definitely great. need to make it a bit cooler, don't we? Um, but one final question. Uh, I was meant to ask it earlier, so it's a little bit out of, out of any kind of sequence. But um, you, you've had arguably two of the most aspirational, not had, have, uh, two of the most aspirational dream jobs. One being a mountain guide, a heli skiing guide. You stood. <laughs> uh, you know, most of us skiers just dream of getting one heli skiing trip in in our lifetimes, and you've had thousands of the, the trips up and down mountains. Uh, and then the other is working as a a very very high level director of photography, a cameraman. Cameraman sounds a little bit. No, it's a cameraman. Um, it's a cameraman. It's, it's still yeah. a cameraman. Yeah, but it's an artistic position. Yeah, director of photography. That sums it up much more. But for people wanting to get into, uh, to become working in your industry, what sort of advice would you give? Shoot. Sh- just shoot. Go out and shoot stuff. Um, Let's just be clear <laughs> to any Americans. <laughs> <Yeah. listening. laughs> shoot to a New Zealander uh, has a very different, a cameraman has a very different meaning than. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I've caught myself out saying that before. I shoot people. They're like, what? Uh, really? Oh, yeah. No, 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 not like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, um, watching movies and being passionate about other people's work and being inspired, I think, is, is one of the first things to do. Um, I think one of the worst things to do, and I think what happens now, it's led by uh, a generation now of, of people who are looking at people's lives, the best version of their lives, uh, you know, through Instagram and some of the social medias, is they're seeing what it looks like to have a photo of being a cameraman, you know. Um, what a big, chunky having piece a big of camera, equipment on your yeah, shoulder. Holding, holding a camera, and you know. I would always, like, um, get Isn't my... Isn't that a guitar, what you just held there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would always get my crew to, to, like, hold the camera, and then I'd go and hold their, their camera, you know, or a tiny little camera, and then get a, could I get a photo of your camera, you know, because I think it's a bit silly. So I think the advice for me to give people is, is don't shoot for a showreel, shoot for the passion of the picture and shoot for the passion of telling stories through your photography and how that how important job you have doing that because if you're doing it for your showreel so that you can make money and meet famous people you'll never be able to unlock the secrets of creativity and be right in the moment and be able to you know um, tell stories at, at a deeper level I don't care for my show. You virtually won't see me online anywhere. I don't care for that. I don't have social media. I don't really, I mean, I don't put that first. Maybe I should and maybe I will, but it's not leading me first. I'm not, I'm not going out guns blazing on a, on a um, social media campaign to try to get as many likes as possible to try and get a big job with a, with a famous director. In fact, even the biggest cinematographers in the world uh, or directors of photography, it's the same thing. Um, they will still shoot short films for free. They'll still shoot passion projects. They'll still shoot little things on the side because they're passionate about pictures. Mm. And that's the most important thing. And I think that you can't really teach that. You have to You have to feel it. Um, when you're shooting documentary, you shoot with your ears. You know, you're listening. You're listening to people. You're listening, you're listening, and you're watching, you're observing. You're not thinking about how good this is going to look on your showreel. And you're not thinking about how impressed the producer's going to be when you get back. 
you're thinking, how can I best tell the story of this amazing person I've got in front of me? And you've got to listen and tune in. And, um, and that's what I really like. You're shooting on the fly as well. So you've got to make very rapid decisions and you've also got to be good with people. And, and all of those come together. Um, and sometimes you can just make the camera go away. And it's not even about the camera. You know, yes, I do have the best camera in the world and I have all the best gear in the world, but that's only because of the, the types of jobs I do now. Um, but I can quite happily shoot it on an iPhone if I have to and still have the same level of excitement. Um, so that's the, the first thing is just, just go out and shoot and, and have, be passionate about it and be inspired by other people's work. And then eventually you'll find your own style and your own way to tell stories. And, uh, and, and the other thing is, you know, just be humble and listen. And when I first started out, I would tell people, oh yeah, I can do that, I can do this, I can do, you know. And, and then, and after a while, I, I started meeting these, these heroes and, and as cinematographers, and I've done a couple of master classes at the American Society of Cinematographers. And the first thing I noticed is they don't say much. They're just humble and they just listen. And that's a really big skill, you know, just to listen and tune in. What does the director try and say? How can I tell the story visually with the paintbrushes I have? How can I best serve the script right, for the, the writer's script, you know, with, with visually? And, um, and, and that's, that's why you do it. It's, there's something in the collaboration that when it all comes together, it just feels magic. Whereas if you're out there going, uh, it's going to look amazing for me, I'm going to be such a hero at the end of this, I'm going to get bigger jobs, I'm going to get a f paycheck, and then you're doing it for all the wrong reasons, you know. So, I think that's good advice on life is to continuously look at where you can add more and more value and then it comes back and it's, it's kind of the golden rule here in Bali isn't it with karma yeah do as you want to be done unto yourself I agree any questions I should have asked you any deep dark secrets that need to be revealed no I think we got through through quite a bit of it we've been cracking on for an hour and a half now oh. it only took us 24 hours to get set up but <laughs> I think that was worth every minute of it. I hope it wasn't too boring for you guys out there. Mm. <laughs> no, it was amazing. Let's go and grab some lunch. All right. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Mike. Appreciate yes. it. Bye.